Hello, nephew community. My name is Dr. Josh Garibaldi, and I am a medical science liaison with OTSCA. Welcome to another episode in the Hot Topics and Nephrology podcast series. This is the second episode in our What's New in ADPKD series, and it's all about aneurysms. It's well established that autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease leads to the relentless development of renal cysts, but it is also characterized by a wide spectrum of vascular complications, the most frequent and serious of which are intergranial aneurysms. Today, we will explore ADPKD-associated intergranial aneurysms and the risk factors associated with their occurrence in ADPKD patients. Welcome, Dr. Garamella. Dr. Garamella is an Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine and Nephrology at UC San Diego. He's the Director of Acute Dialysis Services at UC San Diego Health and the Founding Director of the UCSD PKD Center of Excellence. He received his training in India, Chicago, and completed his fellowship at Tufts University, training in clinical nephrology with a focus on polycystic kidney disease with Dr. Ron Perone. His research endeavors have led to multiple NIH-funded studies and numerous peer-reviewed publications on the topic of kidney diseases. He has an ongoing NIH grant for his research, elucidating aspects of kidney disease, and has been the recipient of a multitude of teaching and clinical excellence awards. He is also involved in initiatives to develop programs specifically targeted at minority, minority populations in an effort to improve health literacy and potentially clinical outcomes. Dr. Garamella, welcome. I know I set the stage a bit during the introduction, but can you elaborate on why the topic of aneurysms is important in ADPKD? Thank you so much for having me. That background is uh, really perfect. And one of the things that's unique about aneurysms in ADPKD is that unlike other common kidney diseases due to diabetes and hypertension, aneurysms are actually more common in people with PKD compared to the general population. To give you an idea, aneurysms are almost four times higher with a prevalence of 8 to 12% in PKD patients. Also, subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is the devastating complication that we're all worried about when people have aneurysms, is also unfortunately more common in PKD at about three to seven times in patients who have first-degree relatives who've had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Importantly, this subarachnoid hemorrhage due to a ruptured aneurysm occurs nearly a decade earlier in patients with PKD compared with other people who have intracranial aneurysms. And so as you can see, patients with PKD have a unique risk factor of developing aneurysms that can rupture more frequently and even occur at younger ages. When you look at the types of aneurysms, in fact, these aneurysms sh are shown to be more prevalent. That is, in patients with PKD, there's a high rate of intra, uh, intracranial aneurysm multiplicity. So nearly 33% of people have multiple aneurysms compared with only about 22 to 23% in the general population. And the location of these aneurysms is also slightly different in people with PKD. Patients with PKD have a predominance of intracranial aneurysms in the large caliber, internal, carotid, and middle cerebral arteries, while posterior communicating intracerebral aneurysms are more common in non-ADPKD patients. 
And so taking together the epidemiology and the risk of rupture and the catastrophic complications from rupture, especially in patients with PKD, are kind of what bring intracranial aneurysms to the forefront. Thank you, Dr. Garamella. So you, I think, set the stage well at why it's important to discuss aneurysms in ADPKD. And we see that AD, aneurysms in ADPKD is more common than, the, than in the non-ADPKD general population. But are there any risk factors among, among patients with ADPKD? Are there any risk factors for the development of intracranial aneurysms? That's a great question. And yes, we believe that there are certain risk factors that cause people with PKD to develop aneurysms while others don't. Probably the most common one is a family history of intracranial aneurysms, especially in first-degree relatives, either aneurysms or sudden death due to subarachnoid hemorrhage. The second, of course, is that if someone's had one aneurysm, they're more likely to develop another aneurysm. So a personal history of aneurysms is a risk factor. Recently, large European cohort data from the GenKist study suggests that women may have a higher risk of developing aneurysms and that this is perhaps seen more in women who are postmenopausal, therefore suggesting a potential protective role of estrogen earlier on. As is with the general population, as people age, they tend to be at risk for vascular disease and intracranial aneurysms are no different. Even in PKD, older age is associated with intracranial aneurysms with the risk being about 3% at uh, age 50, increasing up to about 8 to 9% by the time someone reaches age 70. With regard to the genetic mutations, we do know that intracranial aneurysms are actually about twice as common in people who carry a PKD1 gene mutation compared to the PKD2 gene mutation. So PKD1 is also the more severe form of polycystic kidney disease, and these patients also tend to have a higher rate of aneurysms. And finally, across populations, what we know is that people of Finnish and perhaps Japanese descent may have a higher risk. Now, these are your traditional non-modifiable risk factors. None of that we can change, either your genetic makeup, your age, but there are modifiable risk, modifiable risk factors, which are, again, very similar to that seen in the general population. And the top three being smoking, uncontrolled blood pressure, and excess alcohol intake. And so treating those modifiable risk factors in someone at risk for aneurysms is probably something that is really low-hanging fruit for all of us. Thank you so much, Dr. Garamella. Now let's pivot a little bit. Can we talk about maybe some of the expert recommendations on screening for intracranial aneurysms in these patients? And that's perhaps the most interesting and important question that everybody wants the answer to, but is also the most difficult one to answer. It's really unclear if widespread or even perhaps targeted screening for intracranial aneurysms is beneficial, depending on how you define benefit. And I think to answer that, we need to dive into some available data, but also need to consider whether we're talking about cost-effectiveness data or clinical outcomes data. To give you an example, one study from the Mayo Clinic evaluated over 3,000 patients with PKD who had had magnetic resonance angiography done before the development of any symptoms, 
meaning that they did not have a clinical reason right then to get that. So it was pre-symptomatic screening. In that cohort, about 9% of patients had endocrinal aneurysms, again, which is in line with what we know at the population level in all PKD. And during a follow-up period, in 737 patients who had no intracranial aneurysms detected, two patients had an intracranial aneurysm rupture, with the incidence rate being about 0.04 per 100 person years. In addition, in the follow-up of 469 patients, New aneurysms were detected in five patients, and eight patients had aneurysms that grow. Now, this data is important to know because it gives us an idea about perhaps what the risk of new aneurysms would be in people without the uh, aneurysms at baseline, and what the likelihood of either rupture or growth of aneurysms would be. Personally, I discuss the risks and benefits of screening, finding and treating aneurysms and the risk of a rupture of an undetected aneurysm in all patients who have PKD. There are sp some particular patient groups who I think would benefit from screening. One is those who have a family history, especially first-degree relatives, persons who are going to undergo major elective surgery, especially vascular or cardiac surgery with hemodynamic instability. Some centers also screen patients who are undergoing kidney transplantation, although the data is still unclear, again, like with most uh, screening. The other category that are often screened are people who work in high-risk occupations, such as pilots or bus drivers, in whom loss of consciousness from a ruptured aneurysm could place not only their lives, but lives of others at risk. And lastly, some patients who get started on chronic anticoagulation and blood thinners and who might be at risk for bleeding are often screened as well. But then the follow-up question then is, well, if you screen someone initially, what do you do if they have no aneurysms on initial screening? And really, there's even lesser data. And perhaps the Mayo study that I quoted was is one of the only ones that we can actually draw from. There's some data to suggest a cost-effectiveness, perhaps, of every five-year screening in patients who don't have an aneurysm initially. But I think real-world data from large centers and across the world would really need to uh, be collated for us to answer this question more confidently. For now, I, I recommend it. I, I recommend it to all patients at an increased risk. Discuss it with all patients and provide, the, uh, provide opportunities for repeat imaging in patients who may want to do it at regular intervals. Thank you, Dr. Garamella. So... If we identify on screening, we identify an intracranial aneurysm in a patient with ADPKD, what is the management strategy for an aneurysm that's detected? This is a really important question and one, unfortunately, that lacks data specific to PKD. For the vast majority, management, I think, remains the same whether people have PKD or not. And the first step should be referral to either a neurosurgeon or a neurovascular specialist, someone in your department, in your hospital, who sees these patients. And the decision then to either manage them conservatively with non-invasive treatment or including monitoring or interventional management, of course, depends on several other factors. Patients with known unruptured aneurysms who are managed conservatively, of course, should be 
counsel on hypertension management, avoiding tobacco use, any illicit drug use, avoiding alcohol um, in high quantities, and uh, even perhaps uh, straining, excessive straining and valsalva maneuvers, although the data on that is uh, really unclear yet. For patients who have small aneurysms detected that perhaps don't require immediate surgical intervention, the recommendations are to follow them maybe every six months initially, and then after a year, annual screening for two to three years, and then as needed if it's radiographically stable. In the case of intervention, of course, it becomes a little more complicated because you have to consider the patient's age, the comorbidities, the risks of the procedure themselves compared to the risk of rupture. And there might be certain aneurysms that require intervention right off the bat. Any aneurysm, for instance, that's symptomatic. Any aneurysm in the setting of a subarachnoid bleed from another aneurysm at the same time. Some aneurysms, for instance, that are located in the basal or apex that may carry a relatively high risk of rupture or large expanding aneurysms at other sites. But again, I think this is really a nuanced conversation between the interventional, you know, neurointerventional folks and the patient, because again, no two patients and no two aneurysms are necessarily the same. And we're really extrapolating data from non-PKD patients when it comes to the management of aneurysms. So having a very good working relationship, getting these patients in into the neurosurgery clinics as soon as possible, um, and having a team-based approach, I think, is perhaps the most important thing in treating them. Thank you, Dr. Caramello. This has been very informative. But before we conclude this episode, would you like to provide a quick summary for our listeners? Absolutely. Thank you. I'd like to reiterate that aneurysms are much more common in polycystic kidney disease than they are in the general population and carry a higher risk of rupture at an earlier age. Risks of aneurysms increase in patients who have a first degree family member who's had it and in certain genetic conditions such as PKD1 mutations. Lastly, the management of aneurysms when detected after asymptomatic screening or monitoring is really the same as with any other aneurysm in non-PKD patients and a team-based approach with neurosurgery or vascular interventional services is really critical for taking care of these patients. Make sure that everyone is at least given the option to be screened and I think it needs to be a personal decision whether or not, personalized decision, sorry, whether or not people decide to continue to screen regularly or go in for an intervention if something is detected. Thank you so much, Dr. Garamella, for this great overview. And thank you, Nephew community, for joining us today as we went beyond the kidneys to discuss ADPKD-associated intracranial aneurysms. Please check out nephew.org for future webinars, podcasts, and events. And follow us on our social media platforms. Our handle is at Nephew Community. Our podcasts are also available on various platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and of course, on our Nephew mobile app. Thanks again, and we look forward to seeing you here at Nephew next time. Enjoy the rest of your day.